0: Welcome to Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen.
1: We're very excited uh, today, the whole team. Uh, This is our second podcast. And we've actually, we're excited actually because Dave Campos is here, but we're also in transition. Uh, We're in transition from name. It was going to be the Hansen podcast, HCH. And now, thanks to uh, some intervention of one of our research assistants, uh, it it's gonna. I want you to tell me what you think of this. Not two words, not one word. Non-obvious with Hugh hands.
0: Like it. Yeah. Very
1: nice. All right, good. Um, and so you know, Dave Kappas is one of these people that I uh, I think someone should check his DNA because I'm sure there's probably some stuff there that isn't even human. Uh. All the stuff he's done over his life is like incredible, and he's been ridiculously successful, and still is, and also a very nice guy. Uh, Tremendous combination. All right, so we're going to start off your life. You are a West Coast guy, correct?
0: Yes, born and raised.
1: All right, but you were in Northern California, which is different than Southern California.
0: Well, I was born in Palos Verdes in Southern California and raised in the Huntington Beach area, Fountain Valley specifically. And my 95-year-old mother and father are still living in the home that I grew up in in Fountain Valley, California.
1: All right, where is Fountain Valley?
0: It's uh, basically a bedroom community in Orange County right next to oh, Huntington so, okay, Beach.
1: Oh, okay, okay, all right. Because I, but you went to school... Up north.
0: Right. Undergraduate, UC Davis, law school, UC Berkeley.
1: Now, UC Davis, uh, you were an engineer. What? Uh, so what was your major? What actually did uh, you...
0: I was electrical and computer engineering oh. in the days when that major focused on digital design and before there was a CS major, so we got to take computer programming as well.
1: Oh... Uh... So to some extent with computers, you were computers before computers were cool. You and Dolly Parton, and that's what you said about country. You were ahead of your time of getting into, I mean, uh, you graduated in 83, right?
0: Right, yeah. Starting in, I started programming in 75 on a Burroughs machine when I was a sophomore in high school.
1: Wow. All right, so what you could have been... What drove you, or not drove you, but what interested you in the science or engineering or computer area? Was that just, you were born with that? You always knew you wanted to do that? Or did you think about various things to do when you picked that? Uh, you know, I
0: enjoyed the um, challenge of solving technical problems, um, enjoyed thinking about computers and the promise of computers and the excitement of computers. And like you said, Hugh, in those days, they were not as ubiquitous and taken for granted as they are now. So there was fascination about the computer itself. Now, you know, hardly anyone cares about the device.
1: Now, I saw someplace you were summa cum laude. laude uh, yeah, yeah,
0: undergraduate, yeah. yeah that, um,
1: that's pretty impressive, isn't it? I did okay. Uh, Then you went directly from what I read into IBM is that correct?
0: Right yeah I was recruited from Davis and after graduation I moved literally got on an airplane with what I had in a suitcase and flew to New York.
1: Now at some point though this was 83 or 84 you started that at some point you decided to go to law school, uh, where, which is not the normal road for somebody with your background than going to IBM. So what was it that caused? And did you go at evening or did you go?
0: I went in the daytime. Berkeley's, a, you know, an all-day law school.
1: But you worked at the same time or not?
0: Well, IBM um, had a really great program in those days. And so the company let me take a leave of absence each fall and winter to go to law school. And then I resumed my employment um, in the summer and worked part in engineering and part in law the first summer. And then I went back to Berkeley, took another leave of absence for my second year. Um, And then after my second year, UC Berkeley was willing to let me go do my third year at George Washington in DC in order to get Um, IP courses, because in those days, no other law school, at least none that I knew of, and certainly not Berkeley, offered IP courses.
1: And and GW had one of the first major IP uh, curriculums, and largely the result of patent examiners going in the evening to GW, and then GW just served serve that need, and created a wonderful curriculum. How was your one year at GW?
0: It was great. I And I, I went at nighttime to GW in that last year and worked at the IBM Patent Law Training Center, which was located just walking distance from the patent office, then in Crystal City, Virginia. So it was like a perfect all IP all the time. I worked all day on patent applications, learning how to search, learning how to Answer office actions, how to draft applications, how to draft claims, and then went over to law school and took literally every IP course they offered.
1: And how many did they offer?
0: Well, they had those days. Don Banner was teaching patent law, I took him. Rennie Tegmeyer, you remember Rennie, right? Mm -hmm. He was teaching patent office practice, a very detailed course on 37 CFR and MPEP, basically. There was a copyright course, there was a trademark course. Did you take them? I took them all, yeah, yeah. And that might have been it in terms of the, the IP courses they had.
1: You know, most, and that was a lot. Uh, when I came to Fordham, and uh, you know, and I, I didn't start out in IP, was, but when I started teaching IP, uh, early 80s or something, we had one two-credit course in IP mm. for, for everything, so obviously, uh, uh, and you basically had NYU, Columbia, Berkeley, GW. Uh, what else? John uh, Marshall mm. Mm. Uh, and New Hampshire, and those those were the sort of the centers for IP. So you spent. Your whole professional career before you became the director of the uh, PTO at IBM, now most people switch around, or was that not the culture then, or you just, what was it about IBM that it could, day after day, year after year or something, interest you in stuff with your mind and everything?
0: Yeah, I think uh, so a combination of things. One, it certainly was my philosophy to, you know, choose something and stick with it. Um, and so it was a natural for me. Number two, IBM gave me a great career, just plain and simple. That It's a great company. It was and it remains an institution. It's just a great company. And so it was a fun and challenging place to work with a culture of stewardship and a culture of Uh, you know, institutional promise that really fit well for me. And then the third thing is they gave me a lot of opportunity. IBM invested huge amounts in training me in leadership, um, in management, in substantive intellectual property skills, uh, and giving me jobs literally all over the world, one after another. So it's actually like having, you know, whatever, five different jobs over a 26-year career, but you didn't have to change your badge. And
1: IBM, wasn't it called Big Blue or something? Yeah,
0: I think it still is.
1: Yeah. uh, And it it actually, there wasn't, today we think of trade associations and everything else, and basically IBM was by itself. And when the EU had its software directive, it was really basically IBM going over and representing, you know, that area of trade uh, and and no one else. it was one French company, uh, uh, and that. And that, and they were so dominant, but so what happens? I think they had I don't know sixty percent even of the European market. What happened that IBM lost market share or other things to others? Is that just a natural progression? Yeah, I
0: think it is. You, you know, the market just keeps changing, and you know, IBM I think has been very smart in general about seeing market trends coming. And moving its business, and that's what's enabled it to not only survive, but in general, thrive over a 100 years. So I, I remember when we sold the PC division, and I was heavily involved in doing the IP legal work for that and leading the IP team and doing that work. And it was, you know, for me, loving PCs and you know IBM being a leader in that field for a long time. Um, you know, at first, it was a little difficult to think, God, we're getting out of the PC business. We created this whole business. But then you realize it's time, right? The market has moved. This is no longer a place for a company like IBM. And it was a brilliant move by Sam Palmisano, who made that decision and executed it. And it worked out extremely well for the company.
1: Did you ever think of going back to IBM after being director of the
0: p Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, it, it was. Uh, I, I never would have left had it not been the PTO job. So I have, you know, no, no, no reason not to. All
1: right. I'm going to ask you, I was going to ask you this later. I Might as well ask you now. So what was it about Cravath? I know they were a client or they were law. They represented IBM. So you had some experience with them when you were at IBM, right? Cravath?
0: Yes. I had gotten to know through years of working with Cravath, um, a number of partners and had lots of good relationships there and um, you know, when I announced I was leaving the PTO, um I connected with contacts at Cravath, and um you know uh and it just went from there.
1: Okay. So you're now at Cravath. how did you end up director of the PTO? tell us about sort of how that developed.
0: Well it it was not a job that I lobbied for or asked for or politicked for. Um I simply was called at the beginning of the first um, Obama administration by newly appointed Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. Um, and uh, and it, w- it actually was kind of a shock. I mean, my r- recollection of it was I was sitting in my office doing some work, you know, you know answering emails or re- reviewing some document. I think it was a Thursday afternoon. and My secretary suddenly comes in and says, the Secretary of Commerce is on the phone. Will you take the call? And I said, Well, I guess. And uh, uh, Secretary Locke said, Look, I heard you can fix the Patent Office and it's in deep trouble. Will you come and do that?
1: How deep a trouble was the Patent Office, uh, PTO, at that time?
0: Well, you know, um, it's all uh, uh, relative. I mean, I'm sure there are those who would say, you know, it was no no problem at all, but just if you look at the facts at that point in time, our our country's economy was in free fall, and the patent office income upon which it depends for 100 percent of its operating expenses was in free fall because people stopped filing patent applications. So one of the things that I was confronted with even before I was um, confirmed by the Senate, was potentially having to furlough the entire agency for the first time in its 200-year history. I mean, I was literally asked to help put together, I think they're called the WARN letters, that you have to send to employees pre-furlough. And so we had to figure out a way to avoid doing that. Um, we also, remember, had the Tafis case. The first time in its history, the USPTO had been sued by its constituency to stop the agency from doing something that people felt so strongly about that they were actually willing to sue the USPTO. What
1: was it that they felt so strongly about? That
0: was the the rule, remember the rules package, the so-called claims and continuations rules package that was incredibly unpopular that had been proposed. So, uh, you know, the agency at the time I think was rated number something like maybe 178 out of around 200 agencies. So it was well into the bottom quartile in terms of um, the perception of the employees about the, um, about the, the operations of the agency. So I, you know, I thought things definitely were um, uh, in rough shape. And what year was this? This was 2009.
1: Now, why were people no longer filing patent applications?
0: Well, because the economy was melting oh, down. Businesses, right? Yeah, that was yeah, the yeah. the bottom of the economic
1: recession. I see. And uh, how long did it take you to, to say, I'm going to do it? Because it's obviously dramatic change. Well,
0: I, you know, I had to talk to, if I recall correctly, two people. Most importantly, my wife. And then secondly, my boss. And... Um, You know, in both cases, I said, look, you know, uh, I'm willing to go do this, but I'm not going to do it if it's going to break glass. And my wife very quickly said, yeah, sure. You know, we can manage it financially. Um, Seems like an adventure. Let's go do it. And my boss, um, uh, the general counsel of IBM at the time, Bob Weber, was extremely gracious also and said, you know, look, your country asked you to go help. You know, it's hard to say no.
1: Okay, and uh, you were there for what, a little more than three years, almost four years?
0: Almost four, yeah. I was confirmed in uh, just before the August recess, I want to say the very end of July or early August in 2009, and I stayed until um, after the second inauguration, I think, to the 1st of February
1: 2013. Okay, um, and... You were also, what, assistant uh, secretary of commerce or deputy secretary of commerce for IP?
0: Uh, yeah, it's um, director of the USPTO, um, and uh, what do they call it? It's not an assistant secretary. Deputy? Uh, there's a slightly different name that they give it. Undersecretary. Undersecretary. Yeah, undersecretary of commerce. For and,
1: and what is that job, actually?
0: So that's the the White House facing, administration facing, policy facing part of the job. And that's what distinguishes the USPTO leader role from many other patent offices. Like, like in many countries, the leader of the patent office um, has an administrative and management job processing patent applications, but has no policy role, does not speak to or for the administration or to Congress or to the courts on intellectual property policy issues. In the case of the U.S., the undersecretary part of the role is the policy part of the role. That's the, in the statute, right, it says that the undersecretary will advise the president through the secretary of commerce on intellectual property issues.
1: And how much Uh, Free reign that you in that position have to determine what the policy should be?
0: So I felt that I was very lucky, actually, and I was given tremendous free reign. You know, it's the government is a big enterprise, of course, and there are lots of constituencies. So for me, it was familiar. It was a little bit like IBM on a different, you know, sort of a cycle. Um, You had to learn who you needed to talk to and go. have the discussions you needed to and build the constituency, so for me there was a there was a natural fit in in doing the coordination I needed to do. I say that Hugh, to say that i didn't go in there and just try and you know call all the shots on my own and say i don 't report to anybody i 'm the only guy who knows anything about i p in this government, and i 'll tell you what to do. I approached it by seeking out allies and colleagues and constituents and working with them, and within that construct, I felt like I had enormous flexibility. I was able to do, you know, essentially ev- anything and everything I wanted to.
1: All right. Are we talking about domestic? Are we talking about also
0: Global. international? Global. The treaties, remember the copyright treaties that Justin Hughes led? Um, print Disabled Treaty, uh, Broadcasters' Rights treaties. those are the only treaties that have been done in generations, right? And mm-hmm. we did them, and we did them readily. I don't mean that to um, to uh, denigrate Justin's work. He did absolutely fantastic work. And those treaties would have never gotten done, would it not have been for Justin Hughes. But my point is, um, we were all over everything, the re-energizing the harmonization debate. We totally orchestrated that play on the back of the U.S. year of leadership of, um, uh, what was it, one of the, like, um, 20 largest economies, one of the big meetings that causes many other countries to be gathered and they were, and the U.S. had that year to lead it. So we formed a play at the PTO. We said on the back of this big meeting we're going to invite the chiefs of all the patent offices from uh, the Asia Pacific region um, to come to the U.S. PTO and we're going to have a meeting on harmonization and we're going to come out with a an agreed statement that says that the Pacific Rim, the U.S. and you know everyone else in South and Central America and Asia, um, from Korea, Japan, you know on down to Australia and, and uh, even I think India, we got everyone to show up, um, agrees that it's time to re-energize harmonization. And we took that, and it was all planned. We took that. text uh, So it's just harmonization
1: Europeans? of the patent administrative process. No, this was substantive. substantive.
0: Yeah, this is is grace period, right? This is the big stuff. This is full 18-month publication. Remember, at the time, the U.S. wasn't even on the first-to-file system. It was first-to-file, and we took on the responsibility to go get that done, and as you know, we did.
1: Yeah, it's not a big thing, but first-to-file was resisted by the so-called independent inventors, and in fact, I think Bush was, the first Bush was ready to go that way, and then he pulled away, because they said that corporations are going to end up stealing our stuff, and uh, we don't know how to file, and America was really built on us, and this is sort of selling us out. Now, did you hear any of that? Oh, yeah, you...
0: oh, yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a huge issue. So... Um... The way we dealt with that issue was a combination of retail, and I can come back to that and explain what I mean by it, I'll give you an example, um, and uh, uh, you know rational policy. So we, we went and collected the data, something that folks forget to do a lot of times, but the PTO's got a lot of data. So we looked up for um, Interferences that had occurred for, I want to say... the.
1: Tell everybody what's an interference.
0: So an interference is when two parties um, invent the same thing and have the same claims pending in front of the agency. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's basically what an interference is. Two parties make the same invention at about the same time, and under the old regime, the USPTO would declare an interference, and it had an incredibly Byzantine complicated process that took several years to figure out who's the real inventor. The most important interference that's been going on in recent years is the CRISPR-Cas9 interference between the Broad and UC Berkeley on who is the first and true inventor of that hugely important um, genome editing tool, CRISPR-Cas9. So anyway, um, we uh, had to, to, to get first to file through, we had to understand and get the independent inventor community to understand how interferences really work. What happens when you live in a first-to-invent world? What does it really mean when two parties think they invented something at the same time and have this um, interference process? Because that's the only time it matters, right? If the, f- the, f- the party that's the first inventor is also the first to file, none of this stuff matters. It only matters when the paradigm little inventor guy makes an invention and doesn't file a patent application and, and someone else comes in and files a patent application first, and then the little guy has to say, I invented that first, even though I filed second, we're going to have to have an interference because we invented the same thing, and the patent office is going to vindicate my rights because I invented it first. And you know what happened when we pulled the data, and like I say, we went back like at least a million patents. We went way back in time, as far as we reasonably could. We pulled all the data on the interferences and sorted them by interferences that involved a junior party who was a small entity versus a senior party who was a large entity because that's the only time this matters. Mm -hmm. Again, if you only, you become the junior party when you're the second to file. Mm -hmm. If the little guy was the first to file, they would have won under the first to file system, so none of it matters. It only matters when the little guy is a junior party. And you know what we found, Hugh? That out of all of the USPTO's records, when the little guy was the junior party, that party won the interference 0.00% of the time. There was not a single time they ever won. Couldn't find a case in the PTO's records. So I was able to go back. and and start explaining to members of Congress, look, this is all a false dichotomy. People that we really care about, small inventors, are being fooled into thinking that they have this system to rest on, I'll be able to vindicate my rights even if I'm the second to file, when in fact, they should put zero credibility in that because it never works for them. It never works. Senior parties have huge advantages in the interference system, and everybody knows that. So we were able to start then convincing and explaining this to members of Congress and showing them data um, that that you know we need to have a more honest conversation. People need to know this current system doesn't work, and they'd be better off confronting the fact that they really need to be the first to file or they're not going to get okay. the patent.
1: A little more on junior. Are they important anymore? Is, is there a role for the independent inventor today, or is it basically too sophisticated uh, and really the only people who can do this are larger organizations?
0: Well, so I, I believe the independent inventor remains extremely important. Um, and while the, the proportions of patent applications filed by small entities and micro entities have gone down, um, the patent system remains the great leveler. It remains the great tool that enables the little guy to get a foothold. As much, I wouldn't say more now than ever, but but as much now as it ever did.
1: Okay, uh, patent assertion entities are. Uh, are they there to help? Do they help the little guy?
0: Um, I think, to some extent, they do. They mm-hmm. provide a liquidity opportunity for patents. So set aside abusive practices that happen by all kinds of parties, big ones, little ones, patent holders, and infringers who do all kinds of um, sharp things. So if you set aside abusive, the sort of, I'll say the second standard deviation, the stuff off on the fringe where, you know, people do bad things. And you talk about legitimate inventor creates legitimate invention, gets legitimate patent, um, which I, I believe is what happens the large majority of the time, and then seeks liquidity event, which could be selling the patent to someone who will broker it to someone who is in a much better position to build a business around it. Per, in my view, perfectly legitimate. And that that's all a matter of um, uh, specialization, which we've known for hundreds of years, is a great driver of economic efficiency.
1: All right, so the use of the word troll, is that legitimate or an intellectually dishonest way to have everyone thinking bad about one party when the facts actually don't support that?
0: I I think it really is intellectually dishonest. Mm -hmm. I think it has gotten us into a huge deep ditch um, in which we do things that are, in my view, frankly, very un-American and generally inappropriate of labeling Um, uh, Parties should be judged by their behaviors and and not have labels put on them. Uh, And the whole troll narrative has unfortunately badly distracted us from the real problems in the system.
1: Okay. You were a a big party in producing and getting past the American Defense Act. Isn't that correct?
0: Yeah, I certainly was heavily involved and... Did my best to help. Is there anything
1: looking back on that uh, with either the substance or when it was passed or how it was passed, or anything that you would do differently? Or do you think actually, no, it was what we did was fine?
0: So that's a great question. I would tell you, um, no, that there, there there really wasn't anything that I would have done uh, differently in any significant way. But you that's not to say that we did a perfect job. We now know that we wired the IPR system too tight. We we were hellbent and I'll take the blame for this. I was
1: What's IPR system?
0: The uh, interparties review, the post grant challenge system that the USPTO now. has. We're a very muscular system. It was designed to be very muscular. It was the answer to abusive patent practices. It was designed to do that. There's all over the House and Senate floor um, uh, speeches, there was discussion about um, the post grant challenge system stopping, quote, the patent trolls, right? So when the legislation passed, this was now the first, so everyone celebrates, right, everyone back backslapping, And then suddenly, I can remember this, I woke up, I think this was, we had a big White House party, president, pictures in the Oval Office, it was great.
1: You actually have the pen. That,
0: yeah, I got the, I got, yeah, one of the pens. He one of several the pens, pens yeah. yeah. Um, and that Saturday morning, the next morning, I woke up and it suddenly occurred to me. And I turned to my wife and go, you know what? Who the hell is going to actually implement this? And I realized everyone else was gone now. And it was us at the patent office. It was our job to implement this legislation, 100% our job. Everyone was going to be watching us and frankly expecting the PTO to fail because that's the sort of expectation that people have about, frankly, about government generally, that it'll struggle to implement challenging new laws. Uh, And the other thing I realized was in the 200-year history of the USPTO, it had never before been given a precise time schedule to get anything done. The only place in in uh, thirty five U S C that had any time even mentioned before uh, was the words due, I think there's something like due dispatch that um, I believe go in the um, reexamination or reissue part of the statute. Um, it's the, I think it's a reissue part, and so there was never. Any specific time given for the PTO to get its work done until now. And for the first time, we were told, you've got to get these things done in 18 months. Very clear, very specific. And so my instruction to the team was, we're going to design a process that will get finished every single time in 18 months or less. I remember very specifically telling uh, the team at the PTO in our conference room there on the 10th floor of the Madison building that we were going to permit going over 18 months 0.0% of the time.
1: You're in this Madison room. Who are you telling? Five people? Two people? A hundred people? Mm, no,
0: more like 15. We, had, we asse- immediately assembled a team um, a cross-functional team, because a lot of people need to be involved. Obviously, the board, but we had to create this new board. James Smith came in, who you know did a brilliant job of putting that together. The patents team, so the patents commissioner and uh, deputy were there. The CFO, because you got to allocate money. The personnel head, Fred Steckler, because you're going to have to go out and hire like a hundred judges. Um, you know, so I had all the right people in the room. We reported. We appointed a czar. Janet Gongolo, to be the, the... But you
1: also brought in some people from the outside uh, to help you, right? Sure.
0: We started hiring judges
1: immediately. No, no. no I'm talking about uh, patent experts or patent people from academia or other places.
0: Yeah. So we did that. Um, and, and we had those advisors in the room as well. Uh, Peter Minnell was one of the Edison Scholar... We created a program called the Edison Scholar Program. Peter Minnell was one um uh jay thomas from uh georgetown was another one i don't remember who who others were but we had a series of really great um ip scholars not just patent people but ip experts come in and add their voice and add their scholarly external perspective and they were helpful oh extremely i absolutely loved i used to go into you know peter and jay's office over on the one of the side aisles of the 10th floor of Madison, late in the evenings, you know, 7, 7.30 at night, and just sit down and just talk about issues.
1: And do you still do that with them, or are they... Uh... No, well,
0: I, I mean, I, I don't work with them anymore. No, no,
1: I don't mean work with them, but, I mean, I, do you call them up or any...
0: Not regularly. I mean, I see Jay, I see Peter at, at your conference, among other places.
1: What is... Just... You might as well... What do you think is the best IP conference in the world, if not the universe? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so I'm conflicted because I have been involved in the Fordham conference for a long time. But but I will tell you, I really think it is the best. And the reason is because it is the only international conference anywhere. And I go to all of them. I go to tell you, I'll be in Singapore soon. I was in Japan last week. Um, I'm at all of these things. The... Fordham conference is the only one that authentically attracts um for hard hitting discussion. This isn't like speed dating to try and you know get cases and win business. This is about i p discussions on a broad basis from all over the world. It's the only one
1: Yeah, and you were going from way back when you were with i b m and oh yeah uh,
0: I think i've been at I think now I've been at every one since nineteen ninety nine or two thousand would be the latest
1: well Reagan knows we'll have to actually check that information here yeah, uh you can fact
0: check it but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty no, sure. i
1: No I think you have been um all right so we who are the players now in and just do USIP? You got the Federal Circuit you got you guys would you say Academics are a player, or are they just an irritant on the outside now?
0: I think the academy is definitely a player. Please don't say the academy. Okay, academics, are I think, are are definitely a player, um, uh, and and probably more so than before. Because think about it, Hugh. The academics now are doing um, at least two things that I don't remember seeing really 20 years ago. One is filing amicus briefs. They file them all the time now, singly, in groups. And those are some of the best amicus briefs, right? They're very carefully written, and they have no agenda except to get the law right. So that's one thing that they're doing that is, like, within the last 10 years, if not five years, has really come on. The other one is signing on to group letters, right? Letters into the administration, letters into the USPTO, letters to Congress that are expressing views. In a very concerted and organized way. And I think that's great also. And then, of course, they do all the things that the, you guys always traditionally have done, which is write scholarly papers. You know, there's plenty of that going on too.
1: You find that academics, uh, with some exceptions, are generally more IP skeptics? Yes, definitely. And why is that?
0: Well, maybe you need to tell me um, on I think that I one. know why. I, I mean, I think there's a certain link to being property skeptics generally, um, and that then carries over to intellectual. Well, I think
1: that's that's definitely true. But when I became an academic, before you were born, um, everyone who went into IP went because they were interested in, like, copyright, for instance. They were wannabes, a wannabe singer, creator. Novelist, like I wanted to be a novelist, I unfortunately did not have any talent, uh, and then we naturally went into went into copyright and science. The people who are interested in science naturally went into patents and were pro patents. Now, what we have is thanks to the internet and tech, the people who go into IP are, are from the tech side, and they view tech, just the tech side views IP as the ghost in the machine. The tech can just. Beautifully distributed gazillion things to everybody. Oh, oh not, not with IP. It's just like with the national trade lawyers. They viewed IP as the problem because we want things to flow between countries, mm-hmm. no barriers or anything else. Oops, you mm-hmm. have IP. Mm-hmm. So those people, for various reasons, uh and antitrust people. Mm-hmm. They just view it IP as a monopoly, of course, mm-hmm. which is, isn't, but the um but it's much more Uh, When I first started out, the the interesting thing is the antitrust people were virulently anti-IP, the nine no-nos and Mm -hmm. all that other stuff, and as were the international trade people. And so the General Agreement of Trade and Tariffs, which then became the WTO, the U.S. said, we want to put in a requirement that you treat IP. They went crazy on that. And then the U.S. got the EU to come in and, and it was able to do it. But it was basically over the bodies of the people who had been pushing GAT and all those things over the years. Uh, but one of the things that happened is that these multinational companies had IP lawyers, trade lawyers, mm. and they were pro-IP. Mm-hmm. So where you had these really different points of view... It became more mixed. And antitrust is another example. Mm -hmm. Look at the new assistant attorney general for antitrust. Uh, Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, Delrahim has done, made some great moves. Yeah,
1: and, uh, but in academia, it's sort of the other way. Whereas they were all for IP, now a relatively small group bar. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, It's interesting. But I, I think... I actually think academics have less influence than they did in the past. Oh, really? Why? Well, we'll see. Uh, of course, my amicus briefs, and by the way, it's amicus. <laughs> we're doing the classical Latin <laughs> now, not amicus, but all right. I think we're crucial in a couple of cases. Uh, and uh, I have no proof of that, but of course. Uh, anyway, all right, let's, let's move on. So the play, the Federal Circuit, where do you see them today as a, player? Are they okay? Mixed up? We don't know where they're going. Uh, what? What's going on with the Federal Circuit?
0: Well, I think they're, you know, like the rest of us, they're struggling with the decisions coming from the Supreme Court to a fair extent, especially in the 101 area. And I think it's, you know, to to be honest, it's it's a mess. It continues to be a mess. Uh, the Federal Circuit is trying mightily, in my view, and making some headway, actually, in some some of the recent decisions at trying to, you know, recover from the mess that the Supreme Court has created and, uh, and lend some uh, framework, some predictability to 101 again. Um, but I think the, the, you know, the recent years of the Federal Circuit have been a lot about trying to sort out uh what's coming from the supreme court uh and and to deal with,
1: well, with that. well yeah i think one of the things is the federal circuit which makes a lot of sense wanted bright lines so you could figure out businesses had to figure out what we can do what we can't do and the supreme court was this no it has to be ad hoc everything else and bright lines are wrong and of course what base are they doing that for? Maybe uh, intellectual basis, maybe some other basis, maybe because they really don't understand it. And therefore, if you do it case by case, they can sort of figure out who's the bad guy in a case or something else. But it, it is not something that's going to be where you can then build on it if it's, everything is case by case. And for years, there was no review of Federal Circuit decisions you know, one in 20 years or something mm-hmm. like that. And all of a sudden, the, the Supreme Court is going this way, the Federal Circuit is going this way, and is almost looking at the Federal Circuit as a real problem. Mm-hmm. And so the review of the Federal Circuit now has made them probably uh, paranoid or mm-hmm. something, is that every, they really think everything they do is going to be watched by the Supreme Court, and maybe it is. Mm-hmm. But I think the result is you're not getting tremendous um, results from anybody. Uh, yeah,
0: so if you take that, you you're, you're, take your point into the agency whose job it is to execute on the laws, to, right, to implement the laws, it's chaos. When you try and tell 7,000, 7, examiners, all of whom come into the office to do a good job every day, when you tell them, you've got to look at each invention and decide whether it's abstract that's chaos. It's, it's, the, it's the paradigm of, I know it when I see it. It's a personal decision. All these poor examiners, hundreds of thousands of times a year, now being tasked with making personal decisions. It makes no sense. It's not a repeatable process, as you say. It doesn't lend consistency. It doesn't enable businesses to make decisions. It drives senior business executives crazy. Um, and, it, and it deprives the law of the respect and the um, understanding, the, uh, the reverence that it deserves. When you go and tell a CEO, you know, I really can't tell you whether your patent's valid or not. It depends on whether some folks think it's um, abstract. And the CEO walks away saying, I don't want to invest in this anymore. This system seems like it's just out of control.
1: But it, it, it's interesting. The Supreme Court likes it because they don't have to know anything. They just, how does it hit them? Yeah, I, know I know it when I, when I, I see it. I see it. Yeah, There's something yeah. wrong here and I'm yeah. going to mm-hmm. do it. Uh, And actually, to their credit, to some degree, they were trying to limit their decisions. We're not trying to do this. We're not trying to do this. But the practical effect is different. Everyone's looking over their shoulder and all these other situations. And it's the extreme example, and maybe it works, is obscenity. Justice Stewart just said, I know when I see it, we can't have a test. That may work for obscenity cases, but it's not going to work for the panel. All right. Right. Um, So... Director, uh, Michelle Lee, preceded you. Uh,
0: Suc- succeeded, right? Succeeded.
1: Suc- Suc- yeah, what did said, I say? Yeah. Preceded. Yeah. Yeah, um,
0: After Terry Ray, his uh, deputy uh, as director, a, yeah, was in the place for, uh, yeah, I want yeah. to say, a year uh, or so.
1: And to some extent, everything was going well. You have this great machine working and everything else. Um, and then you run off to Cravath, leave everybody in the lurch and what we have is and then the president not I don't know engaged or whatever for year you know how many year or time, months or years did he take to actually appoint a replacement yeah, it and took then, a long time yeah hmm? it yeah. took a long time like two uh, years and um and a lot of people weren't keen on the replacement um so what happened there I mean uh, it's like everything is going well and then boom, um, you leave, and it just all falls apart. Is anyone at fault for this, or is it just the way nature the things happen?
0: Well, so I would disagree with the the sort of premise. I don't think it's fallen apart. Um, I think um, there was a lot that was done that, what needed to be done to implement the AIA. That was really the project for the second administration. It was a huge piece of legislation, a lot involved in implementing it. And the team, I think it's fair to say for the most part, has done a really good job in implementing it in lots and lots of ways that it doesn't get anywhere near enough credit for. Um, So I think that was going on um, and, and, and went just fine. I think also there was the overlay of the Supreme Court decisions on 101, which created a chaotic situation. No, which all right, yeah.
1: let me ask you this. If you were still there, I mean, you still, you implement. If you were still there, you would have tried to make sense out of all this thing, and maybe the rules you would have given to your examiners or other things might have been different. Is that true? Well, yes. Um,
0: uh, and so, and you can fact check this one with my good friend Bob Stoll, who was my commissioner for patents most of the time when I was at the PTO. Um, Bob and I are in constant contact. We were together in Tokyo just last week. When the, the Alice decision came out, I believe that's the one, the morning of the Alice decision, we both read it, and we sent each other either emails or got on the phone or whatever and immediately said, this is perfectly okay. Just look at the line. It was Justice Thomas, Right. Look at the line that says, this decision should be read narrowly, um, lest the, the, um, its holding swallows up the Patent Act. And we said, that's the line. What the agency needs to do is put out a memo to examiners today and publish it that says, steady as she goes, great Supreme Court decision. They just came down and said, we meant what we said in Bilski. This is very narrow. Keep doing what you're doing. And that... So that was uh, both of our immediate instinct. And I think had that happened, things would have, I think, probably gone differently. And you would have gotten, you, what you rightly pointed out a few minutes ago, is seeing that the Supreme Court has been trying to, to render extremely narrow decisions, interpreting them narrowly, and you know continuing on with the course. Yeah, I
1: mean, basically they gave, when they did not want, to rock the boat, they would bring in Thomas. But one time they brought in Breyer. And Breyer has very strong views and everything else. And even though he said, we're not doing this, we're not doing that, but we're doing it. Uh, and you read that opinion, there's enough in there for people to go all over the lot. Um, and, uh, but I, I do think that if you had stayed in there, that we would have had a much better post the situation today. And I don't think... There were the votes to come down on, hard on, doing things uh, a little bit different, but not dramatically different. But then when you have the federal circuit, and in banking, I can't agree there, like 6-5 or something else and all these other things, and then you had that period of bad patents, uh, which spooked a lot of people, Um, the court said, okay, we can't trust federal circuit now, and we have to sort of continue to take cases and continue to take them. And and I thought they, it could have been, okay, we did it, we're moving on, but uh, not moving on has been a serious problem.
0: Right, it's been sort of one after another.
1: All right. Um, So who are we going to Are there any justices at the Supreme Court, do you think, okay, that's a safe pair of hands, or are they all sort of, they really don't know it, they know they don't know it, and uh, what?
0: Well, so I like the the um, decision on international exhaustion, or not international, on international um, damages, damages that came out. Damages that just came out, yeah. Yeah, so I think you look to that for a recognition that... Um, Patents matter. Patent damages matter, and I don't know whether that marks the beginning of a trend. Now the court's going to look at uh, um, at another thing that we worked hard on in in the AIA, uh, which is the on-sale bar and secret um, sales, and whether they count as prior art. That's going to be a challenging case for them. Um, but uh, you know, you you hope that the logic that was used in this decision that just came out. Um, on damages would would prevail.
1: Yeah, and that certainly actually may help patent uh, owners in, in settlements and other things. Oh, sure. So, yeah, it definitely right. will. Um, all right. Um, let me uh, look at some of the things that have come in. Um, I'm not going to mention people's names, but all right. One is, uh, why isn't international arbitration a much better way to go in this World where you can't tell what's going to happen, and and people aren't crazy about the court of justice either when it comes to patents, uh, and it. Um, so one person is questioning you have international arbitration, and usually have people who are going to be picked to have some knowledge, uh, or they're not going to be picked in the area, um, and you'd have more certainty, more predictability, less expensive. Why? Is in, are more people going to that?
0: Well, so I think that's actually a great idea, particularly in these complex global licensing situations, like we're involved with standard essential patents. And we've seen decisions, including the great decision by Justice Bierce in the UK, that starts to work on this concept uh, of what is a global license anyway, and how does a court in one country determine a global FRAN licensing rate? And I think, um, Hugh, the concept um, of inter- of international arbitration is born of cases like that, where people look at them and they say, you know, this is really hard. And Justice Bierce, in his case, had to write um, whatever it was, I think it was around 160-page opinion or so, was incredibly detailed. Um, I'm sure it took an enormous amount of time and intellectual energy. You can't just repeat that for uh, every time, time after time, there's a new case. It's much better to get a panel of arbitrators together and do an international arbitration. And I should tell you, that's coming together. In fact, this week, almost as we speak in Tokyo, there's an inaugural meeting going on of a new international Frand uh, royalty arbitration center that's being stood up. The two uh, new international, uh, or sorry, the the judges that are included in it um, are from all over the world, I believe uh, Australia, Europe, including the UK, Germany, and uh, at least that I know of, if not other countries as well. Of course, Korea is in there. Um, I believe multiple judges from China, Japan, the US, and we're going to see this international arbitration center stand up to judge these kinds of situations, that is global royalty rates, especially for Fran. And I congratulate the JPO and Commissioner Munakata-san for leading in creating that kind of thinking um, and standing up that center. So we'll see. we'll see if it succeeds, but I think it's a great idea if it could be balanced and if it can stand up to the interests of the many implementers who want to drive value out of the patent system in order to take their costs down, and if it can appropriately identify damages and royalty rates that compensate innovators for the huge sacrifices and the risks that they take. I think if it could do that, it'll be quite a success.
1: All right, this is, part of this is, is is a question, part of this is, this one is me. So to some extent in the world of litigation, um, a large multinational suing in a smaller country, regardless of what the law is, a treaty or something else, there's going to be pushback sometimes by the smaller country judges. One is because they had nothing to do with the law. It came in through treaties. So they didn't, uh, I mean, the legislature and nothing else, so it's just being imposed on them. Two, though, it's multinationals against small. And three, if it's an American multinational, you know, for a while there was a lot of anti-American and sort of dissipated. But now with Trump, can we expect more of this just, just the American suing in a country? And this is the question from uh, the person who wrote in. There'll be pushback. Uh, just because of Trump trade wars and other things?
0: Mm, yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. I would, I, I, If I were advising a global company on filing a case right now, depending on where, I certainly would be factoring that into my decision. I, but I think, to be fair, Hugh, for, for most cases... Uh, they're they're going to be under the radar screen. It would be the bigger cases, the ones that have higher stakes and are more political, particularly in small countries, where you 'd need to factor that political component in
1: okay do you give by the way do you do you give advice on to clients as where they should sue? Is that part of what you do uh, uh
0: Yes, in the sense of you know i don 't like getting in disputes i almost always find myself advising clients. Don't get involved in litigation if
1: you can avoid it. So Uh, settlement is a better proposition.
0: Yeah, or finding ways to form uh, Alliances Mm. and and agreements and and i well, one of the things I've always loved about Cravath is that uh, you know the law, the Philosophy there is very much of a careful one for clients So but I do get called in and am advising on a number of those kinds of situations right now
1: all right is right i am looking at these now um there might be some um uh u s uh, unilaterally doing things in administration uh this is applied i p uh to what extent does it undercut common ground with other countries i suppose that that's in there too yeah it uh, i mean
0: unfortunately it it does right to see you know for instance um the u s for many years has, um, you know this probably you as well as I do, it's all over our treaty history that we told country other countries we absolutely would forbid international exhaustion, that exhaustion had to be on a nation-by-nation basis. And then to have the U.S. Supreme Court just go and totally undercut USTR all of our treaties all the negotiations that have gone on we look silly around the world
1: but that, that was one of the worst decisions I think they've ever had and of course they did not listen to my amicus brief but the uh, and it was just incredible because actually in a previous decision Stevens and dicta said there was still no international exhaustion uh, so everyone has been going for years and years and years that it is, and you can now rely on Stevens' dicta. And then they do that. Now, that was one of these split decisions where you had dissenters and two of the judges who one along with Roberts on this said, well, actually, we probably don't agree, but we think that previous Stevens case requires this, which is crazy because he actually said right in it, it doesn't require it. So, and it was... It, 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 you would think if they're going to do something like that they'd wait till they can get an outstanding majority mm-hmm. true majority to do mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and that's one of the problems with our Supreme Court I think is one is they're not necessarily knowledgeable uh, certainly of industry and the effect in the real world and they're arrogant and they know better um, and that's not really what you're looking for in your mm-hmm. Supreme Court but mm-hmm. uh, that's what we have All right. Um antitrust and IP, Um, is it going in the right direction, which I think it probably is right now, but I'll leave what you say. You know, the thing is actually they're not contradictory. Uh, One establishes certain rights, another is looking for abusive behavior, and they both can be put together and, 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 and work out okay. Um, but what you have then is people who, um, NGOs or others or techies who want to use it as a tool to broadly base limit IP. Um, and then you have, uh, others in antitrust who are trying to make it actually rule of reason, more reasonable, uh, with regard to various business practices, so what it what what is the future of antitrust and IP? Is it uh, going to be better? Going to be worse? Conflict? We don't know for sure. What?
0: Well, so first of all, Hugh, I would agree with you that it's definitely getting better in the U.S. Um, the the um, new administration has come in and said several things that I think are are noteworthy and very positive. Number one, we want to see data. We are going to Um, guide our antitrust enforcement and policy based on data. That's great, and it's really important, um, and it's a long time overdue. And then the second thing they've said is that we like innovators, and they've said basically to what you're saying, that antitrust isn't about being against intellectual property. In fact, it recognizes that the dynamic competition brought on by intellectual property And the disruptive change enabled by intellectual property is really positive for competition. So, there's this second item of the um, Department of Justice in particular now taking a longer term view of competition and the needs to have investment in building new business paradigms, which means, which requires in turn strong intellectual property. That is a really positive trend. But the other thing that you didn't mention and I think needs to be talked about is the international component. So, you know, 30 years, 35 years ago when I was starting to do this stuff, there were basically two antitrust regimes, the US antitrust regime and the European antitrust regime. And they were basically more or less, you know, aligned um, uh, with modest departures from time to time. Now we have, I forget the exact count, but it's at least 130 or more antitrust regimes. Every big country, every medium-sized country, every small country, and even most of the really small countries have antitrust regimes. And the problem with that is that each one of them is, is addressing and pursuing its own national agenda. Now, even in the case where that national agenda is based on the law and administration and enforcement of the law, even there, you get very suboptimal results. I see this in the big deals we do, because you can have a deal that affects 100 countries, and if any one of those countries, maybe 20, 30 of those countries, has some issue with potentially losing a local competitor or what they perceive to be a local competitor in their market... They will block the deal or extract something from the deal that will then um, disadvantage competition globally. So there's a tremendous friction there, even in those situations where it's all, you know, uh, enforcement of the law and there's no other agenda at play. The second problem, even bigger, is that the antitrust laws are inherently very malleable. They are very general in nature. They're nowhere near as specific as the patent laws. And in the hands of enforcers who have a national agenda that they're pursuing, a national competitiveness agenda for their particular country, or an anti-foreign multinational agenda, or a we're going to help the local competitors, our national champion agenda, whatever that is, it's got nothing to do with advantaging competition for the benefit of consumers. And it's got everything to do with other agendas. Um, the antitrust laws are a perfect tool in the hands of those enforcers and they're being used that way. And so you're winding up with, you know, antitrust chaos all over the world and, uh, and, and and harm being done to consumers on both a national and a global level.
1: Yeah, well, basically it's a tool of industrial policy now, whatever that is. And the, you know, a country you were just in and talking about, China is probably the prime example of that. And uh, they have this story which, uh, of course, uh, EU went after uh, Microsoft, right? And uh, and a very famous decision and uh, close. And in fact, the court uh, and court of first instance only affirmed it like seven six or eight seven, which is very unusual. Um, and a lot of, and I, it, it's peculiar and probably doesn't carry much water, but. It was a strong decision against uh, Microsoft, which actually in the U.S. was not taken. So then this person who ran that litigation in D.G. Comp, or I don't want to get too much into names, but he was talking to me about it. And afterwards, the head of competition in China came up to him and said, uh, well, what did the U.S. do to you after that? Meaning the government. He said, what do you mean, what did the U.S. do to us? Do said, anything. Yeah. We we're, were in the penny. He said, well, if you had done that, what you did to Microsoft to one of ours, I would have been told to go after two of your companies in even a worse manner to teach you a lesson. Now, that's very frank, and this was two heads basically talking to each other. Um, and that's sort of what is going on to some degree. And it, it's... So the, you have the small guy just want to protect the local. You have, industri- you have China, which is we want to protect our stars as against anyone else. And uh, not small and not weak, but we want to be able to. So you have, I think you're right, you have a situation which is, it can be pretty grim. So what can be done about that, if anything?
0: Well, I'll tell you what needs to be done. Number one is U.S. leadership. And it starts at home. The U.S. antitrust agencies, the DOJ and the FTC, and to, again to the credit of Michael D'Orsogna, the DOJ is making the right moves. Need to clean up their own house, and they need to stop the agenda-driven enforcement and the discriminatory enforcement. And I'll give you another example that I'm sure you're aware of, Hugh. You'll love what I thought was that totally irresponsible um, position that DOJ antitrust put out against the uh, fractional licensing of copyright interests in the music industry. It was atrocious, and it was clearly agenda-driven. And I was so happy that the Southern District of New York hammered it, and the Second Circuit hammered it for what it was. Stop it with that, right? That's irresponsible. And to the credit of the DOJ, they are. I hope the FTC will get on board with them and, and first clean up our own shop, and then start going out, as the DOJ is already doing, overseas, and sending new messages that say, look, we're, we're settling this down and you need to do it too. And we're going to be expecting you in your country to do evidence-based antitrust work and not be pursuing national industrial policies or just advantaging the interests of local Yeah, you
1: know, What was scary about that case is one is there were good people involved in it. Two, it was so stupid, it was unbelievable. We're talking about consent judgments that have existed since the 1940s. And the antitrust division is saying we're unilaterally changing those, which you can't in a consent (laughs) judgment. And you know there is a consent judge who will hear everything that happens with regard to that. Set up basically so that one of the two, BMI or ASCAP, if they're asking too much, a consumer. Company can say, go to this judge and say, Look, they're raping us on this charge. We want a lower charge. That's why it was created. But that person's going to hear everything. And it was two seconds. Right. You know, not in a short opinion, this right. is ridiculous. Right, right, right. And that was scary, uh, I have to say, because it was no chance of succeeding. Right, right. Um, and, and I thought, you know, they had some good people then in the antitrust division. So, you're right. I think we have to start at home with this. And but we are now, right?
0: Right. right. Yeah, it's much much better situation. All
1: right. Now, if you were me and no one, I don't no mean, one I, is you I, I don't mean <laughs> I don't mean to scare you by that. Uh, what would you ask you?
0: Well, uh, let's see. Um, well, um I would ask uh, about new technology trends that are having and will have a huge impact on intellectual property. The first and foremost is blockchain. I think that nowadays you need to talk about blockchain.
1: What is that? Give us a definition.
0: I'll give you a definition. You don't have to be a technical person to understand blockchain. Blockchain delivers that uniquely human attribute and quality that is perhaps the most valued and rare thing on the planet, trust. Blockchain is simply about trust. And if you can deliver trust, you've got something really special. That's what blockchain is.
1: Well, how do you deliver trust? What is the mechanism?
0: So blockchain delivers trust through consensus, through broad uh, consensus that is not controlled by any one party. It's It's a brilliant basic concept that says, in a world in which I either can't or don't want to trust any particular party, whether it's a government or a company or a person, how do I gain trust? Well, I gain trust through consensus, through consulting with many others and finding out that they agree on a certain state of affairs, on a certain thing. And so blockchain establishes trust through consensus.
1: And what's the future of that? What's going on?
0: So they're huge, huge. So first of all, Hugh, I would tell you, it's not about speculating on cryptocurrency. That's the tail, not the dog. That's little stuff. Kids thinking they're going to get rich and the vast majority of them don't get rich. That's not what blockchain is about. Blockchain enables business transformation on a, on a very, very broad scale. So it, for example, as blockchain gets up and working more, you are gonna. We are gonna have the ability to walk into a drugstore, and with our smartphone, scan a, essentially a you know the two-dimensional barcode on a product in the drugstore, and immediately learn whether it is um, whether it is genuine, whether it is authentic, whether it has any problem with it, like a recall that's may come about or has come about, whether it um, in some other way became adulterated such, such as that it wound up, you know, it should be refrigerated and it was sitting in an unrefrigerated environment for a day, something like that. So think about the impact of that. First of all, you've got much better supply chain control. Second of all, in our domain, intellectual property, right? So supply chain control means safety, means consumer happiness, means companies don't have to do go find all their bad products um, and spend all the money doing that. So it's good in lots of consumer ways. But if you think about the intellectual property connection of this, first of all, you totally change the way you think about trademarks in a lot of domains because the brand is established by the blockchain, that's what lets you know that this product is authentic. Trademarks will still be around, and they'll still be important, so I'm not saying trademarks will go away. But blockchain will play a role that will supplement the trademark. So that's, in my view, um, quite fundamental. Second thing that's fundamental in the intellectual property domain about this, as you have the blockchain working, you can police counterfeits, right? You can take counterfeits out of the marketplace. Much more readily, go to another domain. I was just talking about pharmaceutical and you know healthcare products and drugstores. How about music? Music will be all blockchain enabled, which will mean, you know, when a piece of music is traveling around on the internet, it will then interact through the blockchain with the media that play it. Your well, no one has DVD players anymore, but I guess the download that will occur in your home or apartment, and um, the piece of content will only work then if it is um, uh, if it is solid on the blockchain. And the blockchain can confirm that it was paid for content. So you're going to see in the um, content domain movies, right? So cinematic films that are distributed um, in all the forms they get distributed now, music, et cetera. Um, blockchain-enabled distribution channels that will be much more robust to piracy. So you see, they're another huge benefit for at the intersection with intellectual
1: property. It's almost too good to be true. So what has to happen for this to happen?
0: Well, there's, there are a lot of things that are taking place and that still need to take place. What's going on now that I'm seeing is a lot of pilots, right? blockchain pilots. Everyone's doing them. Um, and that's great. And that's a start. So those are going to then have to transition to scaling up, which will take a number of years. Blockchain has a lot of good things going for it. But one thing that's challenging, it is very compute intensive. It takes lots of IT resources. Um, So there will be a period of transition when we move from pilots to um, scaling up these technologies. And then you've got an adoption curve, right? Because not everyone's going to be able to get on board at the same time. So there's a lot... Uh, But think of this, think of blockchain in another way, Uh, and I'll make it personal in the sense that, uh, you know, I I remember starting to use the internet um, uh, in like around 1992 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So pretty early days And, uh, and realizing very quickly, this is when, you know, we were all enthralled with the Netscape browser and stuff like that realizing this is big, this is really big, and it'll take a while to play out, but it's definitely big. Blockchain represents the second instance of that in my career, second thing I've seen where I've said, oh, boy, this is really big. And one of the reasons is because of what I told you before. It's really just about trust. The other reason, put a little more technically, blockchain is the security layer for the internet. When the internet was designed, an affirmative decision was made not to put in a security layer. And we've sort of labored with that problem about the internet from day one. And a lot has been done to try and somehow superimpose security over this wonderful technical mechanism, the internet, that has no security inherently in it. Blockchain is the security layer for the internet. So it totally... Over time, it totally transforms the Internet into a tool that can have security built in.
1: With that, I think we're going to uh, uh, end our second podcast on, uh, and thank Dave Koppels for being our guest and a wonderful guest. And lots of luck with all you do now. Um, we'll be following you.
0: Okay, I'm writing. I'm uh, working on a couple of papers right now. So I'll be continuing to try and be a, a voice for strong, balanced, and appropriate IP rights globally. In
1: one of those papers, you're going to just have a footnote saying, the best conference <laughs> in the world, yeah. if not the universe, is the Forum IP conference. And I appreciate that. Thanks again, David. It was great having you. My here. pleasure. Okay. My pleasure. Okay. You, Bye-bye.
0: Yeah, bye bye. Yep, bye
1: thanks for listening to this episode of Non-Obvious. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play, or visit our website at nonobviouspodcast.com. Now, here's a short preview of our next episode, where we'll hear the second part of our interview with David Koppels. Are there any drawbacks to a strong patent system? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, we saw that Um, In, as you say, towards the
0: turn of the century and after the internet bubble burst and tens of thousands of, you know, really not very strong, very weak actually, um, software, internet and business method related patents were unleashed, um, you know, untethered into the world. And it led to this run up of abusive litigation, and that was not good for our country, or for innovation, or for consumers, or for anything. So I think that was an example for us of a patent system that had become too easy to abuse.